Commencing countdown. Three, two, one. This is the Contracting Experience. Connecting government contracting professionals to the world around them through conversations with acquisition influencers, insights into evolving hot topics, and sharing lessons learned from the field. Speed Chess. In this episode of the Contracting Experience Podcast, Dr. Will Roper, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics, challenges the workforce to make good decisions faster. He highlights how contracting professionals are shifting the pace in which we buy capabilities through events like Air Force Pitch Day, use of Section 804 authorities, and agile software development. Dr. Roper emphasizes the importance of bolstering commercial startups and shines a light on the creativity and innovation being done in Air Force sustainment. I hope you enjoyed this episode and heed Dr. Roper's call for acquisition professionals to help solve some of the biggest problems facing the Air Force's competitive edge. Welcome, Dr. Will Roper, to the podcast. Thanks, Amber. So you were the first director of the Department of Defense Strategic Capabilities Office. Looking back on that, what insights did you gain that have influenced you as the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition Technology and Logistics? It's a good question. I was asked a lot about my previous job when I was going through confirmation because I had a direct line to the secretary, I had a pretty large budget, and I had a great team of skunk works type idea generators. And our task was to try to find a way to make the existing military do new and creative and war-winning things against an adversary that had gotten to know us pretty well. We had been projecting power in the Middle East the same way. A lot of our capabilities were known. And rising threats like China and Russia had had time to study us and determine what could you do to try to leverage an insight and turn it into a vulnerability. And so a lot of what we did was focus on new ideas with existing systems, but they were risky. The system was not designed to do whatever we were proposing, so you couldn't go to a service or a program manager and say, hey, I've got this great idea, believe me. You had to prove it. And most of our programs focused on prototyping as the way to prove something that wasn't in the original design space, but that was possible. Prototyping and and a rigorous way for doing it became religious for us. It, it, it was a strict discipline that when you stuck to it worked well, but you could easily get off the path by not focusing on a variable that would matter to a warfighter or a service owner. And when we got it right, our transition rate was through the roof. In fact, we never failed a transition in five years. So coming into the Air Force, prototyping is something I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. You can do it for risky tech development programs, but it works really well in programs of any kind where there's a high risk that you need to retire. And the thing that's really exciting about new authorities like Section 804 is there's a prototyping authority that lets you go figure things out before you move into fielding. And I really think acquisition just breaks down into that two-part process. There's the fly before you buy, and then there's the buying. But we've said fly before you buy so often, but we don't do it. And when we do fly, we fly and then buy something else. So the religion of prototyping is fly what you actually want to buy. And then when you buy it, you can be confident. Air Force Pitch Day took place in New York City, March 6th through the 7th. The Air Force awarded over $8 million across 51 small business innovation 
research phase one contracts with an average time of 15 minutes each for requirements for three Air Force program executive offices. From a contracting perspective, an event like this is exciting to highlight the speed capability that contracting professionals can bring to the fight. However, another important purpose of the pitch day was to encourage non-traditional companies to work with the Air Force. Can you tell me how contracting professionals played an important role in making the pitch day a success? And then as a follow-up, why is it important to grow the industrial base now and in the future? Uh, it's a great question, Amber. Uh, I worry about the industry base a lot. Uh, we had an amazing industry base during the Cold War that built war-winning systems uh, that we should acknowledge. They did their job because we won the Cold War. Mm -hmm. But that industry base coming into this century, it doesn't make sense to continue working with it in the same way. In the Cold War, technology was generated mainly by the U.S. government, and it took long periods of time to do. So the periods between platforms uh, slowed down from being years in the original Air Force, in the Century Series Air Force, to being decades in the Cold War because technology was few and far between. If you look at this century, now technology is everywhere. And so much of it is being developed outside of the government and universities and tech startups. So military development and acquisition only works when you've got a clearly defined path between technology and the platform you want to integrate it on. But the model that we have now really works when that technology is government driven. So pitch day was so important because we've got to be able to work with tech innovators at a speed that makes sense for them. And even though we'll think of, a, of awarding a contract in a month as being really fast, for a small business that's living hand to mouth, it's not, it's an eternity. Knowing that you are going to get cash from us on the day you pitch is a game changer. Doesn't mean you're gonna get the award, but if you're selected, being able to count that you are gonna have money in your account changes the whole game. And I wanna make sure folks understand why I think that's the case. One, if you're coming in to this event and you are successful, then you don't have to go get a bridge loan with a high interest rate. You don't have to worry about how you're going to make payroll until we get you on contract and paid. Mm -hmm. You can immediately focus on mission in the warfighter. So that's, that's thing one. Thing two is our money doesn't dilute. You're getting 100% of what we offer. Three, we're not going to ask for equity in your company, and that's a huge thing. If you watch programs like Shark Tank, yep. what are the investors arguing over? How much they're going to own of the product? For the Air Force, it's zero. Like, we're basically a, a shark with no teeth. We're not gonna take a bite out of your company, so why wouldn't you come pitch to us first? And fourth, uh, we're patient, and that's a big deal now. Venture capitalism expects nearer term return on investments than, say, the period that built up Silicon Valley. We come in being patient so we can play a valuable role in the ecosystem. We're not trying to replace venture capitalists. We want to play a partnership role where we can invest earlier, allow a company to take on more risk before they have to give up equity, and then eventually when they want to become a commercial company, they've, they've been able to put more time into their product design. So if we get this right, Amber, with the resources that we have in small business, we have billions of dollars of set-asides, companies should come to us first. And if we build up a business model for working with them where we don't tie them down to the Defense Department forever, where we don't own their IP, allow them to become commercially viable. I am excited about what the future could be if our acquisition system and our contracting and business professionals are connected to the vibrant ecosystem that we see in the tech startup world. Our contracting professionals were awesome. They were the key. 
They got the biggest round of applause at pitch day is when we had our, as we called them, contracting ninjas stand up that figured out how to do that pay in a day, right. that created that new business model. But we're thinking bigger. So we shouldn't do one pitch day a year, we should do many. And the ability to pay in a day, should we just use that for tech startups or should we go broader? Why should we have gaps in the time we intend to award and the time we actually do? Why can't we go ahead and bridge companies over so they start working on day one? So I am so proud of the team that led that charge. A lot of them were younger, entry-level contracting professionals, business professionals that were lit on fire to do this. So I'm excited to see what's gonna happen later in their careers and just had a great time at the event. You've championed the use of Section 804 authority, tailoring Department of Defense Instruction 5002, and utilizing the government purchase card to rapidly award small business innovation research phase one contracts in a matter of minutes versus months. Your focus on speed is changing the acquisition culture to allow teams to use the most appropriate process for their particular acquisition. So what are you looking at next to continue speeding up acquisition to regain dominance in peer competition? There are a few things, Amber, that I hope will do as the, the step after what the Air Force has done so well during, during my first year in this position. I, I give the Air Force team an A-plus. I am so excited with how much change this organization can take. And that tells you something about the talent that we have and that people have been hungry and itching to be given the authority and the tools and top cover to go make change happen. So it's not happening because um, someone in the Pentagon decides let's go fast. It happens because the people who actually touch programs, program managers, acquisition professionals, contracting professionals, all the way down to action officers, decide that going fast matters for the warfighter. And the thing that I hope we can punch through the noise that is our business in defense is that it's not just speed for speed's sake. I mean, going fast, you might argue, is better than going slow. You might as well do the superlative than the pejorative. But it's about competing. And so if people are listening, thinking, why should they buy into speed? Their counterparts in other countries that may be buying into the speed mantra. And if they're making today count for them, then what's that doing to our future warfighter that needs today to count for us? And so this isn't about just taking a few years out of programs today and having a cool talking point in Washington. This is about fundamentally shifting the pace at which we can build things over time because we may be in a competition for decades. And if we have a slower acquisition system, it's hard to imagine winning. You could almost imagine that we're, we're dueling. Our acquisition system is dueling against other, other countries in a game of speed chess. We're making perfect moves that take a lot of time. Doesn't matter anymore. Speed chess is won by people who can make good moves really quickly. They're really playing the clock more than they're pay, playing their adversary. Time to market, time to get something out in the field is the equivalent of the speed chess move. And being able to make good ones faster is a war-winning strategy for a long-term competition. If we wait for perfection, we'll be beat by an enemy that has a faster acquisition OODA loop than we do. So the Air Force has done a great job applying Section 804. It's pulled 87 and a half years out of our programs. We are very close to 100, which just shows the amount of talent that we have out in the field. Some things that I hope that we'll do next is that we will start designing for speed and upgradability. Right? Our holy trinity is cost schedule performance. Mm -hmm. Do we care as much about performance as we do upgradability and adaptability? I would argue that we care more about performance and upgradability is an afterthought. 
The things that I'm excited about in design are not necessarily new technologies that up the bar. They're technologies that allow you to continuously up the bar, get better and better, which might change the paradigm in terms of getting to market. You may not hit with a warfighter once in year five, but if you can give them 80 or 90% in year three and a path to spiral to what they need and beyond, that's exciting. But we're gonna have to change how we think about contracting for and incentivizing openness. And a lot of people will say, hey, we need to be open like the smartphone world. Yes, we do, but here's, here's the limiting factor with that. If you're designing a smartphone or any Internet of Things device, you are highly incentivized to be open so that other people can build on top of your platform. But why is that? It's because the data you will get is monetizable. Mm -hmm. That analog does not exist for us. Right. An open system likely means that a defense company will lose money if they make it open. So I'm asking all of our business professionals, how can we create a new model for working with industry so we can build Internet of Things type systems for defense? Because we replicate what will not be there naturally, which is the ability to have the openness be monetizable. And I don't have the answer for that. I don't know if it's a, a licensing or, or if we have a royalty every time we change something. I don't know. But I need someone who's inspired to try to bring this open design philosophy into the Air Force to find a way to make our defense companies see greater profit potential if they do. And if that person's listening and has an idea, uh, pull my email up on the gallon and send me your ideas. We need to start designing this way. A big first question in the acquisition of a requirement is, is it a supply or a service? Can you talk about how you would like acquisition professionals to reconsider the supply versus services question when it comes to software development? Yeah, software is, is its own thing now, and I'm glad the Air Force has done a great job in pivoting to do software development well. So now it's not just a question of if we can do it, now we have to find a way to do it at scale, and scale is always hard to do. I imagine that my thinking on this is going to evolve as we do more and more software work. But at a macro level, it appears that when we do it successfully, we have basically rotated 90 degrees from thinking about the development as a product with an end state and a certain number of lines of code and thinking of it as a service where there's a level of effort that's continued indefinitely as long as the service is needed. Mm -hmm. And we have peculiar metrics that would not be there for, say, an IT program. They're peculiar to software development that help us know if we're coding well, things like velocity and backlog retirement, that we've got to figure out what are the Air Force metrics that we look at every single time in addition to tailored metrics that may make sense for particular programs. And we don't have those. We're experimenting with them. We've created a uh, program executive office for digital mm -hmm. that is responsible to me to tell us what those metrics are. And having a PEO for digital is not about having one PEO do all the coding. It's about trying to standardize the way we deal with services the same way we do that more broadly. So I'm hoping that in future that when we tell Congress software is now a service, we need a lot of money because we need to do a lot of software, but here are the metrics we're going to use to track it month to month mm -hmm. that allow us to determine do we do well or not, and if we don't, then how do we get back on the path? And I'm seeing great work in even big programs like, like B21. I just did a review of their software, and they've shifted to Agile, and you can look at their coding statistics on a weekly basis and know if they're ahead or behind. Because Agile is not, it's not new to us. 
Agile is just applying Lean Six Sigma approaches to software development. And then having metrics that tell you are you above or behind your targets. So I have a lot of hope that once we educate Air Force acquisition professionals on the peculiarities of software development, that the fact that we know how to manage a production line means we know how to manage a software line. The fact that we know how to do service contracting means we know how to do software contracting. And if Congress gives us a new color of money, which I hope they will for software, so that there is no distinction between software development and sustainment, then look out. We could quickly become an awesome software developer leading the charge for the government. Well, it's good to hear that they're looking at those agile capabilities, not just on developing apps and IT systems, but on major weapon systems and how we're going to do that, because that is a huge place where we need to have that in order to be competitive. By the way, the limb fact on that is not the ability to write the good code. It's that we haven't standardized the development tools that programs should use when they want to do agile. So B21 is looking at me and saying, I need to get approval to use cloud and these type of dev tools. Right. So here's where we are right now, Amber. If you're a program manager and we ask you to start a new program, you don't have to go out and buy your phones or your computers and decide are you using Microsoft Word or any of those things. Those come to you as the starting point of your program. You might need additional IT and then you'll work those exceptions, but there are some things that are the rule. If you're doing software development, you start with nothing. So the first thing we've got to do is create the software development infrastructure, software development information technology, so that when you're asked to do a new program, you immediately get things that are pre-approved. And right now, it's no one's job to do that. We are doing that individually on every program. So that's something I'm taking on this year. I want to make it easier to start writing good code for us. Well, how can I do that if I don't give you good tools? So we are recording at the Air Force Contracting Worldwide Training Summit where you provided the keynote address to the contracting workforce. Can you talk about what you need from Air Force contracting professionals during this transformational time in government acquisition? Uh, I wish I could say it's not a lot, but I, I do need a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm excited to say I have seen such huge enthusiasm and creativity from our contracting leaders and professionals. And I tend to say like contracting ninjas or business ninjas, because I have found that for any task I've put out, People have found amazingly creative, shadowy arts kinds of ways to run through the FAR and the DOD 5000 process. So I've really taken away that where we have talent that's enabled and given top cover, that the FAR and the 5000 series are really, a, really never an impediment for anyone that is excellent. And we have a lot of excellence in Air Force contracting. A few things that I need. Um, Software, we've got to make the shift so that we know how to contract for software as a service. And I see a lot of good starts on that, but we need to standardize the process so that when someone is doing something that's the first time for them, but not the first time for the Air Force, they start with those lessons learned. We need a way to incentivize openness. And we've talked even in this podcast, it's going to be tough because if you win a platform for the Air Force and you're expecting to have 30 years of contractor logistics support because we keep systems so dang long, it's going to be really hard for us to convince you to make your platform open so that we can recompete things on it continually. I don't think it's impossible, though, to create a new business model where they see profit even if we're shifting how the development work will go. You could imagine 
a royalty or licensings or things that would replicate the cash flow to that vendor, which by the way is pretty predictable in the sustainment world. So we, gotta, we have to own that the way we work right now is a very stabilizing force having these long-term CLS contracts because it's predictable cash flow over years. We have to find a way to change that or else we'll keep asking for open and we'll get something that maybe is quasi-open mm -hmm. or just open to them and we won't open to all. And I have no idea how to incentivize that now. So I hope someone listening will say, hey, I know how to do that. And if you do, please, please come talk to us. And I think the last thing we're gonna have to do is just fundamentally shift how we work with commercial startups. And Pitch Day has been a good first step. We've shown we can award a contract and pay a company in less than three minutes. So I, I think in future, if someone wants to break that record, they're gonna have to sprint to do the payment because that's pretty dang fast. Right. But that's just the first step. That just proves we can move money at the speed of relevance. Now we have to make it easy to get to that pitch event. And we need to take our game up to a completely different level. We, we need to start training people to think like investors. We won't be able to do this tech innovation treating every individual 50 or 150K award like a major program. We're gonna to have to treat it like a portfolio of efforts where we're statistically looking for return on investment. We're gonna to have to train people to be able to look at an idea and know whether or not it's worth the Air Force buying in and investing in it. And ideas are something that historically we haven't been able to buy. This is new. So our contracting process before our ninjas made pitch day work moved at a few month pace. That's as fast as I'm aware of for an, another transaction agreement is about two to three months. Mm -hmm. And that's great for a lot of companies, but not a startup. Right. And so now that we can do things at the 15 minute to three minute speed, now we can start working with companies where they don't have a product, they have an idea. And what we learned at Pitch Day is you can't buy ideas exchanging paper. A lot of the companies that we thought were really promising weren't as promising after the live pitch. Mm -hmm. A lot of the companies that weren't as promising were exciting after the pitch. They just hadn't worked with the Defense Department. They didn't know how to articulate what they were doing. But what we learned at the pitch events itself is that you've got to talk to the CEO. You've got to talk to their team. You've got to be able to ask questions. You've got to be able to understand their passion and enthusiasm because you're really buying their potential to turn an idea into something you can use. We cannot do that by doing normal solicitations and doing reviews of paper submissions. So we need to start training people to figure out how do we use this kind of pitch event investment acumen so that we start buying ideas well. And the goal is not to buy them into an orbit around the Air Force forever and ever. The goal would be to allow them to use our orbit to slingshot to bigger and better commercial things. Imagine if the next generation of commercial magnates, the next Amazons, Googles, and Facebooks, imagine if they feel a historical close connection with the Air Force. Yeah. How awesome would that be? We need to be able to work with them early on where we can be most helpful for their growth and development. You've said that you would like to swap jobs with folks out in the field as seeing the creativity and focus on speed and expanding competition in the industry base makes you really excited about acquisition. So what is some advice you wish you could go back and give yourself when you were the program manager on a major weapon systems program? Um, that <laughs> I would probably go back and say I, um, I might be beyond, beyond hope in many areas. I wish, I wish I could go back and manage a program in the era of agile development tools. And it's not just writing code 
faster. The development tools in cloud are amazing. They allow code to be broken up and tied back together seamlessly. It allows testing and debugging to occur continuously. And I, mean, I remember just really losing sleep over programs when you'd be doing your final debug where all sorts of code written in waterfall would be coming together and you would just really hope holding horseshoes and four-leaf clovers that it would just magically go together because if it didn't, you knew you had a long uphill battle to try to find where the, the kinks and bugs were. And all that just happens uh, seamlessly today. So I wish I could have that experience. I, I think another area that's been a growth for me is the, I did not, and I, I will own this, I did not think about sustainment when I was designing a new system. Mm -hmm. And I do see the bias in our system that people who are great designers, are great at running a production line, tend to go to the highest levels of acquisition leadership. And here I am as a guy that worked for the Secretary of Defense building war-winning capabilities for the future conflict, most of which I'll never be able to talk about. But I believe, Secretary, I believe that Secretary Wilson asked me to do this job and I was introduced to her by our chief of staff, General Goldstein, because they had seen the development. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think a lot about the fact that after I'm done and after the production line is closed, what's it going to be like for the 10, 20, 30 years that we keep the system alive and our warriors out at the depots and that are working program offices that are focused on sustainment, they work hard to defy entropy every day. They're working against the laws of physics that make things not want to fly and they're able to do that at a level no other Air Force can. I think if I had thought about them up front, I would have designed differently. I would have thought more about the architecture of my design and less about the in-state performance. And so if I could go back, I would tell myself, think, think more creatively, think more innovatively about the end of the program's life, or at least put as much time in it as you do the beginning. So that's a lesson learned for me, and I can't go back and, and pump it into programs that I started in the past, but I can certainly be a cheerleader for innovation and sustainment, try to make more resources available for the program offices, tools and technologies available to the depots, and creating a, a program executive officer for rapid sustainment, just like we have one for rapid capabilities, is my way of saying we now have a three-star senior position which is focused on innovation and sustainment. It is just as important as having a three-star level position for development. Right. So I hope that now that we're shining limelight on sustainment, that people will start coming forward with ideas. And what I have to make sure is that those ideas get resourcing and top cover. But for our folks that are supporting sustainment out in the field, the creativity is through the roof. It, because of the mission, the, the mission creates an imperative. The imperative creates a culture. That culture has had to do things the hard way and it's done it successfully. I can only imagine what would happen if we pumped technology to their hands so that their, the hard parts got easy so they could think more about moving their game to the next level. I think there's a chance for a step change function without a lot of time and, with, and thinking at an Air Force level without a lot of money. So I just, uh, I'm excited to be able to be their champion in AQ. I mean, it's, not just acquisition, it's technology and logistics, and the L means a lot to me. Well, Dr. Roper, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today, and I know the rest of the contracting and acquisition folks listening really appreciate it as well. Amber, thank you so much for hosting this podcast. I think it's a great example 
of the types of things we need to do to inspire people who don't get to come to a conference or get to come to the Pentagon and tell me about their program, but that are wondering, you know, do these people, do these leaders really mean what they think? Do they really mean that I should take risk and will they give us top cover? And the thing that I would hope for anyone listening, that if you have an idea that is different, if you're in that gray zone where there's no precedent to tell you it's absolutely okay, but there's nothing to tell you it's forbidden either, that you are cleared hot to make that call and to push the envelope. And if you don't, if you think that it's going to be looked, uh, looked down upon, then that's, I ask you to go engage your leadership and keep moving up the chain until you find a level of seniority that can provide the top cover that you need. The time for us to learn lessons is now. The time for us to get back into risk taking is now. Because if we go another five, 10 years without pushing the envelope on how we do business and moving money at the speed of relevance and seeing industry and business intelligence differently because it's a different world than it was in the Cold War. If we don't shift uh, our paradigm and flip the script, who knows what technologies are gonna be ramping up five to 10 years from now. AI, we were talking about that before the podcast, AI could be huge. Mm -hmm. It could be time, it could be time to put it on every system. We may have to do it to keep our relevance if there's a step change and how good artificial intelligence deals uh, in making decisions. And in the air domain, which is fairly simple compared to say land warfare, AI will probably hit us first. What if we have to do that radical implementation in a year or two, that is not the time to learn lessons. So if you're out in the field, push the envelope. Push it till it burns. And uh, if you make a mistake, all we ask is that we make that mistake forward, that we learn something that allows us to be a better decision-making enterprise afterwards. So you have top cover from me, but if you can't get word up to me or you don't feel comfortable doing that, please send it up because what we owe you is to give you validation for the risk you're taking before the result of that risk is observed. We are guilty in the government and guilty in the Air Force of saying we value risk takers, but the people you see are people like me who took a risk and it happened to work out. Well, would that risk have been a bad one had results not been positive? No, it was the same risk. The odds are the odds at Vegas, no matter whether the dice hit your number or not. They don't change. So we should give you the validation that you're taking a smart risk before you have to cast your die. And we need to be taking risk to get the big wins. And the cost of getting big wins are going to be some big losses. So let's call them learning events and celebrate them because they're what are going to allow us to be the Air Force we really need to be. If you have suggestions for topics or people to interview or feedback on the podcast, you can submit those at thecontractingexperience at gmail.com. I want to thank you all for listening to the Contracting Experience podcast. Until next time, keep connecting to the world around you.